From the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is The Televisionaries. Thanks for joining us. Today we're shooting for the stars with Steve Carell's new comedy Space Force. We take a look at the most watched shows in lockdown and catch up with the girl from Flushing Queens who was working in a bridal shop until her boyfriend kicked her out in one of those crushing scenes. Yes, it's the nanny. Here with me today, my fellow space cadets from the Herald of the Age newsrooms, guide and green guide columnist and reviewer, Debbie Enker, and calling in from our LA studio is our culture editor-at-large, Michael Adato. Hi, Louise. Good. Okay, let's jump in. Today we're kicking off with Space Force, the new workplace comedy from Steve Carell and Greg Daniels that is not set inside a paper office in Scranton, Illinois, but on the Colorado base of the new sixth branch of the US military. Carell plays Mike Naird, a four-star Air Force general who has been lumped with making the boots on the moon in 2024 space dreams of an unnamed but Twitter-happy US president come to life. On paper, it ticks all the boxes. Steve Carell playing a stressed-out boss, John Malkovich in a knitted tie. It's got Kokomo by the Beach Boys, a chimp in space, and it's even got a wacky secretary played by a man. However, his space force a massive misfire. Is it okay to launch a show that pokes fun at American stupidity and includes jokes about wasting money on defence while cutting funding on medical research when the current US reality includes a president who talks about injecting bleach when a pandemic, and now riots, are sweeping the country? There are 10 episodes and it's now streaming on Netflix. Before we have a chat, let's listen to this clip where the concept of Space Force is being announced at the Joint Chief of Staff's meeting. Our nation's internet, including Twitter, runs through our vulnerable space satellites. POTUS wants complete space dominance. Boots on the moon by 2024. To that end, the president is creating a new branch, Space Force, which Mark will run. (laughs) What? in close cooperation with Air Force, which Kick will still head. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. This is not a joke. His words, boots on the moon in 2024. Actually, he said boobs on the moon, but we believe that to be a typo. Michael, did Space Force take off or crash and burn? Look, here's the thing. I mean, we did, the clip you just played, there was a boob joke, and as a child of the carry-on generation, I'm a great believer that even the worst comedy can be saved by an unexpected boob joke. <laughs> I really felt like there was no way in. Steve Carell's character I didn't think was likeable enough. Like I was really kind of sitting there going, you know, General Mark Ned is kind of one of those um, Ricky Gervaisy, David Brenty, NAF managementy guy that you don't really like him. But then nobody else in the show is likeable at all either. Everyone else seems like an asshole. The only real saving grace is kind of John Malkovich and it's not even really like you're kind of sitting there going, you know, oh, this guy, the character is Dr. Adrian Mallory, but this guy is so fascinating. John Malkovich, just as an actor, is just kind of so mesmerizing to watch. And I think, may, I mean, Steve Carell is also brilliant. I think between them, somehow you're tricked into thinking this is kind of okay. But actually, for the most part, I struggled. And really, if it wasn't for John Malkovich, who just seems to kind of move through every scene with this sort of, I don't know what it is, it's like a theatrical. I don't know, theatrical reverence. There's something about him. It's actually fascinating to see an actor's personal charisma hold everything together around him, even though the material itself is patchy. That's compelling. So, I mean, it wasn't a massive misfire, but it certainly was a bit of a battle to watch it. And I don't think I walk away going, this is the the most brilliantly funny thing I've seen this year. Look, I got 
got through about three episodes and I maybe chuckled right at the end of episode three where there was a very on-point Handmaid's Tale joke. But other than that, I found it so disappointing and I love Greg Daniels because I love Parks and Recreation. It's one of my favourite shows. Debbie, what about you? I think there are great expectations attached to it because it's Steve Carell and Greg Daniels. And so, you know, there is the history of the American version of The Office, which a lot of people love and they love the collaboration between those two. And a lot of people love Greg Daniels Parks and Recreation. And mm. I know that Michael thinks really highly of Upload, which I've yet mm. to see, which is another of his. So when you put them together and the sort of cast, which you've already taught, I mean, John Malkovich, who just is, Amazing. you know, I watch him writing a letter. Mm. I mean, I just think he's magnificent. But also you've got, you know, Lisa Kudrow and you've got Noah Emmerich and Jane Lynch. So the expectations are incredibly high about what's going to be delivered. I've watched about half of it and initially I was disappointed. But then I started to think, look, it took me a while to warm to The Office, the American version of The Office, which was kind of warmer than mm. the British version. And, and it took me a little while to get into Parks and Recreation and it was to do with mm. getting to know the characters and the situation and the relationships. And I did find as I went on, I started to enjoy it more. There's a joke, I think it's in episode three or four, about Flotus, the first lady, deciding <laughs> she wants to design the uniforms for the Space Force. Mm. And I just think both as, as a verbal thing in terms of the discussion of how to handle it and then as the visual joke it becomes, there was a really good payoff. Mm. And I started to think maybe I just need to give this a bit more time. I think, I and mean, I've always been a great believer that if you can't sell it to me in the pilot, you're not in the gig, but on the same breath, I can't help but look at television history. There are so many shows that had weak first seasons that just became extraordinary shows. Like the first season of Seinfeld is all over the place, but the rest of the show becomes extraordinary. Yeah. The first season of Friends looks really weirdly dated and then somehow the rest of it sort of holds up. First seasons are really, really hard and I think mm. you do have to invest in it. A really, really funny example from Space Force, there's an episode early on that revolves around... Um, the use of a crew member who's a space chimp. It's such it's such a an American space exploration trope. There's all the the Reagan cheesy space chimp movies. You know, chimpanzees were used in the early space program. And the thing I spent most of that episode thinking, oh my god, I can't believe like there's this whole episode going to be carried on the notion that you know this you know this it's a space chimp for God's sake. I mean, I don't want to give away the ending, but the space the space chimp sort of ends up I'll just say somewhere else. That moment, I kind of was like, oh my god, this is sort of. Genius. Is the space chimp going to come back in three episodes' time? Working for the Chinese, or like I'm like this is, and I thought this is so funny that actually I think you're right. I think if you actually give this some space to breathe, and I think it also isn't part of TV really. This TV is such a volume business; it has to be transactional. People like KFC because it smells good and it tastes nice. Oh, That's Michael, nobody likes KFC. No, no. Here, here, wait, wait, hear me out. Hear me out. It's what keeps you going back into the store. And I'm not saying that Greg Daniels is the KFC of television. The fact is <laughs> okay. Greg Daniels has made enough great TV. The American office is good. You know, Parks and Recreation is wonderful. Upload, I think, is maybe the best show I've seen in two or three years. And I kind of go, maybe I owe Greg Daniels the benefit of the doubt. So my, I think my, my verdict is going to be that, Look, it hasn't set me on fire, but I'm not going to give it up. Like I've got, I will watch it 
to the end because at the very least the dude gave me upload. I think I owe him a couple of seasons of of something I'm not certain about. Yeah, look, I agree about the Greg Daniels point because the first season of The Office and Parks Recreation, they were notoriously bad and then heavily reworked and then went on to great success in their second seasons. But I'm just not sure if this will even get to a second season because I just don't think it's landed well enough. Um, And also I think will the politics of the day discount the second season altogether because I'm just not sure how much you can laugh at an America where money is being wasted on a space race and that money is being taken away from the funding of health and education. I mean, they do joke about it in the show um, because when a rocket blows up and they're asked how much did that cost and they're like, four? Four, uh, four billion? No, four middle schools. And that's the of truth course. of it and I don't find that particularly funny. I think if people just watch the first episode, there might be a feeling of disappointment and they might yeah. not go on. But the relationship that Mark Ned has with his daughter develops yeah. in interesting ways. I think there was enough in it to make me think, yes, I would want to persevere. If I was a casual viewer, I don't know that I'd have that impulse because I think there would be a feeling of disappointment, though. Having said all that, it looks fantastic. They obviously spent Mm -hmm. money on it. It Mm. looks, the sets are incredible. Well, Steve Carell apparently did get $10 for this, so maybe they do need it to work for a season two so they can get their money's worth. Yeah, I'm also a huge Steve Carell fan. I would happily watch him. I th- just think he's he's the most wonderful actor. So speaking of Steve Carell, the American office, which he starred in, has been raining its socks off in lockdown. And as restrictions begin to lift, we thought we'd take a look at what shows have been top of the pops for the last 10 weeks or so. Documentaries such as Michael Jordan's The Last Dance on Netflix and The Test, which is about Australia's cricket team on Amazon Prime, have both rated highly, as have funny favourites like Modern Family on Foxtel and New Girl on SBS On Demand, plus new classics such as Game of Thrones on Foxtel and The Handmaid's Tale on SBS. And would you believe it, Debbie, The Real Housewives of New York and Keeping Up with the Kardashians have also been really popular. Oh, that's depressing. I mean, the Keeping Up with the Kardashians, (laughs) (laughs) to me, that is... That is depressing. <laughs> but um, I, I'm kind of, I think it's interesting, but I'm not surprised by the fact that really great sports documentaries such as The Test and The Last Dance are doing mm. really well at a time when there is no live sport. I think it's mm. not just that they're both excellent documentary series. It's also that people can't watch their favourite sports. And for people who regularly watch sport or follow a particular sport, I know in Melbourne with AFL, it's been a very big gap. So this is a small way of being able to fill that gap. And they're both really well-made, compelling documentaries. So Mm. I think there's that part of it. And I think, I mean, Michael did a story in April about the surge in viewing on networks and streaming platforms during lockdown. So I think everybody's been at home and lots of people have been watching TV. So Mm. what I think people are looking for is something absorbing, maybe to catch up on something that they always wanted to watch, which they've missed, maybe a few laughs, maybe to finish something that they started like Homeland because the last season has been on SBS and that thing of, you know, now's the time for me to read Middle March. Maybe there's some series that I always wanted to see that I mm. never watched and now's the time I can watch it. There's a couple of things to kind of unpack. One of them is, is I think that The Last Dance and The Test, I think what's really interesting about them is that I, they are, as Debbie said, they're both they're great documentaries, but I think they also surf off a wave of the way in which streaming in particular has kind of 
reinvented or kind of revived documentary as a form. I feel like documentary, I think, for sort of on television, sort of fell into a, to put it in its Australian context, a bit of a Saturday afternoon on Channel 7 at 5 o'clock, the world around us kind of. That's where it all, it's kind of where it all ended up in a funny way. And so you either had really, really high-end BBC, ABC content and everything else was the world around us. And I and I think what streaming has done is it's kind of just revived the whole notion that sort of a, the, these true life stories, not cheapy reality show Kardashian stories, but the tr- these true life sagas with great emotions and great humanity are compelling. And I think the test and the last dance kind of owe their success in some way to both things like Making a Murderer or even like, you know, the Fire Festival documentaries, all these these documentaries that have suddenly become compelling cultural moments in a way that only scripted dramas used to be. The other thing to unpack, as you said, is there's a lot of reruns in here. And I think, I mean, you're kind of seeing a couple of things. You're obviously seeing the key thing you're really seeing is big inventories. So things like Modern Family and The Walking Dead, it's because they've got a dozen seasons. They, when you binge, you really can kind of create some sort of symmetry in your life around watching something that isn't going to go away in a hurry. And I think that's what you're kind of, maybe if you're in lockdown, you're looking for that sort of constancy. And obviously comedies do well because they think, we, you know, it's a, such a superficial kind of interpretation, but it's true. We want to laugh. They give us a funny out. But I, I'm, I'm intrigued by things like, you know, The X-Files or kind of not just shows that are kind of inventory shows or library shows, but shows like The X-Files was a cultural moment from, I mean, gosh, now, you know, 25 years ago. So it's interesting to kind of see the appeal in revisiting that cultural moment. And I actually think that even though we might imagine everybody watching that as some sort of, you know, pimply bespectacled middle 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 aged me who lived through it once and wants to go back somehow. Actually, maybe it's not that. And in fact what you're seeing is a whole bunch of people who didn't live through that as a cultural moment, but have always been intrigued by the reputation of a show. And the you kind of, you know, and you'll never maybe we only get a once in a lifetime pandemic or a once in a generation pandemic where you can actually go, well actually right now I do happen to have 76 free hours. Maybe I'm going to go back and watch something that takes that much of an investment. So I think that's what kind of draws people into those things. I think I sort of, you know, the, the X, I think the X-Files tells us as much about the lockdown as the test does or as indeed New Girl does. Yeah, I mean, you can see why the streaming servers are paying so much money for rerun shows like Friends or The Office because you know, they're paying to buy a 20-year-old show, but they still make a lot of money. I think the thing that was most intriguing about Netflix's success in North America, globally, but particularly in North America, people often used to say, it's all well and good to make all that noise about all these Netflix originals. But the fact is, the highest rating show on the platform was Friends. Full stop, end of discussion. So the fact is, a library title was the thing that actually kept people most engaged. If you have something like that that you love, you kind of you want to spend time with it. The one thing I think I will mention, which I still feel like anecdotally keeps coming up, is Shit's Creek, which is fascinating. It does not appear in any of the data, and yet if I polled every single person I know, I swear to God, if I asked 100 of them, 90 of them have said to me in the last two months, I'm watching Shit's Creek. It's There's just something about it. I don't know what it is. I just I feel like Shit's Creek is having a cultural moment with the audience, either people who've loved it and are watching the final season or people who are very quickly catching up because it's become a, a bingeable, like a majorly bingeable title. I think it's a bit like what Steve Carell said about the American version of The Office, that 
it, it really grew in popularity as time went on. I think mm. the same things happened with Schitt's Creek. He said, mm. I think I read recently him saying, if you actually took account of the number of people who are watching the first couple of seasons of that show live to air, it was a few hundred people. But yeah. as time went on and as more people saw it because of the options of streaming services, it developed a much bigger and much more dedicated following. I think mm. that's what's happening with Schitt's Creek, that it's it's the way we can watch TV now allows people to discover it and appreciate it differently. And with mm. something like Friends, and I'm a, I'm a big Friends fan, but I think the thing there is there is always a new generation coming along that hasn't seen mm. it before. I mean, to them, it's fresh totally. and new. It's one of those shows, particularly with my nephews and my niece, when they were little, they started watching it. And I remember my, you know, at my apartment in Sydney, one of the things in that apartment is a couple of cabinets of DVDs and one of those DVDs is the 10 seasons of Friends. And I remember whenever I, whenever I go home to Australia, I mean during, the, I suppose, the peak of the DVD era, those 10 seasons were always in various states of absence because my niece in particular, Friends, became like a generationally definitive comedy for her and her friends. It's a, it's a real touchstone. Okay, let's leave Friends there and then visit our friends at the Cheers Bar instead because that's Debbie's topic in today's game. So stick around to see if Debbie can knock off Michael's mastermind crown. Very exciting. We're also going to look back at the nanny and check in with what our critics are binging when they're off duty. In today's game, the challenger goes first. Debbie's chosen topic is Cheers. Okay. The show is set in a bar named Cheers where locals meet to drink, relax and socialise. What city is it set in? Oh, thank you, Louise. Boston. <laughs> <laughs> Easy peasy. Yeah, thanks. Okay, I'm feeling sufficiently relaxed now. <laughs> now hit me with something I have no clue about. <laughs> okay, you've stretched into it. That's good. The next question. What is the name of the seafood restaurant located above the Cheers Bar? I think it's a guy's name, but I can't remember what the guy's name. I'm going to go Sal. No, it's Melville's. Melville's. Mm. Question number three. John Ratzenberger, who plays Cliff, didn't audition for that role. He auditioned for another part, but when he sensed a bad performance, he asked the producers if they had a bar know-it-all and quickly improvised a character. The producers were so impressed they created the role of Cliff Clavin for him. What was the role he originally auditioned for? It's completely a guess, but I would guess he auditioned for the coach. No. He didn't audition for Sam, did he? No. He first read for the part of Norm. Norm. Oh, he auditioned for Norm. Question number four. Before Sam became the owner of Cheers, he was a relief pitcher for the professional baseball team, the Boston Red Sox. What was his nickname? Mayday Malone because he was a relief pitcher. Yes, well done. Okay, last question. Who are the only three characters to have appeared in all 275 episodes across 11 seasons? I would say, okay, Cliff, Norm and Carla. Ooh, no. No. Who else is left in there? Or Sam. Okay, the answer is Ted Danson who played Sam Malone. Rhea Perlman, who played Carla Tortelli, and George oh. Went, who played Norm Peterson. So Cliff wasn't in all of them. Well, Cliff, who's played by John Ratzenberger, appeared in every episode except for one. So that was in episode four in season okay. one, so you were this close. For today's back catalogue, we're catching up with that flashy girl from Flushing, Michael, can I 
I ask you to take it away, please? <laughs> she was working in a bridal shop in Flushing, Queens, till a boyfriend kicked her out in one of those crushing scenes. What was she to do? Where was she to go? She was out on her Freddy. phone. <laughs> I mean, I can't keep, I can't keep singing or we'll get sued, not for breach of copyright, but for appalling, appalling re-performance. <laughs> somewhere in the world, somewhere in the world, Anne Hampton Calloway has just like pulled a hair out and run screaming from the room going, sue these people, sue these people. <laughs> Yes, it's The Nanny, the 1993 sitcom starring Fran Drescher as Fran Fine, the makeup saleswoman with the unforgettable voice and laugh, I know what that's like, from Flushing, Queens, who is hired by Broadway producer Maxwell Sheffield to become nanny to his three children. It's a classic fish-out-of-water story that reflects Fran Drescher's own climb to the top. Following bit parts in Saturday Night Fever and Spinal Tap, she cornered an executive from CBS on a plane and said, how about a show? It worked, and although The Nanny was nearly cancelled after its first season, it went on to enormous success with a theme tune that lives on for the ages. The cast recently came together for a Zoom table read of the first episode, which you can find on YouTube, and a musical is being developed for Broadway, with music written by crazy ex-girlfriend's Rachel Bloom. Before we jump in, let's have a listen to this clip, where Fran is being given elocution lessons by Niles the Butler, played by Daniel Davis, and her boss, Mr Sheffield, played by Charles Shaughnessy. How now, brown cow? Not that there's going to be any cows at the party. That's what you think. <laughs> party, Miss Fine. Yes, let's try to capture that elusive letter R. What? Your accent, it's so... odd. It's inescapable. I don't see an R coming out of your mouth. That's because we're British. Yes, we can say anything we like and people think it's Shakespeare. <laughs> Michael, obviously you love The Nanny. I, look, I, this is such a great show. I mean, obviously the catalyst for this discussion and the catalyst to some extent for me going back and watching a bunch of episodes was the Zoom read of the pilot script and, and probably no, no moment in that was more kind of sort of hair standing on end on your arm thrilling than listening to Anne Hampton Calloway perform and sing the theme. That was extra, it was kind of an extraordinary moment. This was such a funny show and it is really, maybe there's something odd and intellectually scientific as a TV critic about this because when you rewatch The Nanny, it's an incredibly old-fashioned sitcom-y sitcom. It's full of like, ooh, moments and kind of that laugh track is diabolical. I mean, I, as a journalist, am actually so old. I mean, it's a mercy Debbie's here with me because we're pensioners in arms. Um, I'm so old that as a young um, reporter, thanks, as, a young, as, a young, <laughs> as a young reporter in the 1990s, I went to the set of The Nanny a bunch of times and I, and I watched a bunch of tapings. I'll give you, I give you one piece of interesting intel about this show, which was relative to all the other tapings. And if there's a few people, one of them is a guy who used to work at Channel 7 called Mark McGowan. If he's listening, he will remember in the 90s, he and I sat through a lot of tapings. Uh, when you get to a taping, so it's a 22-minute show. Sometimes they take, you know, two hours. Sometimes they take five. And uh, just to, as a quick measure... I went to a friend's taping that I think I left after about seven hours and I was like, I'm really cooked and you're not, you're not finished the episode. Will and Grace was a show that took about three or four. I remember Seinfeld was a show that took about three. I swear to God I've been to nanny tapings where you were in and out in an hour and a half. Not a line was missed, not a mark was missed, not a shot was retaken. They used to shoot the rehearsal, so unlike most shows where they do two takes of a show at the taping, the nanny usually only did one unless there was a problem. For all of its kind of sitcominess, 
It's such a really lovely show. There's two other really funny things. One of them is in my office in Sydney, I actually have a nanny doll that was sent by Sony. The funniest thing of which is you press her back and she goes, <laughs> and then you press her back again and she says the line, the bigger the hair, the smaller the hips look. So, I mean, you know, Fra- Fran Drescher gave this character such life. Like she yeah. really, Fran Fine is a person, you know, and and the beauty of it is it's sort of, it's almost so clever. There's an episode of The Nanny, I mean, I barely remember the specifics, but there's an episode of The Nanny where Fran comes into contact with Bobby Fleckman, who was her character from Spinal Tap, the character that Fran Drescher played, where you're just kind of going, this show is so smart and so meta and so understands itself and just it's just a wonderful, wonderful piece of TV. Completely agree. I mean, I think the clip you played, Louise, had a bit of a uh, My Fair Lady quality, but it's more like Sound of Music or even Mary Poppins, you know, mm. the, the wonderful, magical life force of a person who comes in to help a troubled family with a widowed father and, and troubled, struggling children. And as Michael just said, I mean, she is a life force. She is like mm. a tonic in that environment. And one of just the great things I found re-watching it, I mean, her wardrobe was sensational. The choice they made <laughs> about, because uh, I think originally the network had an idea. I read an interview with her recently where she was talking about the network originally wanted her in sort of jeans and a T-shirt and she said, no, no, the wardrobe's got to be fabulous and the wardrobe is fabulous. My daughter and I spent years coveting her bathrobes. They are sensational. (laughs) Um, Really, they are magical. But also it does stand up and one of my favourite memories, I'm so envious of Michael having been there to watch them film it, Because one of my favourite memories of watching it years ago when my daughter was quite small and she was very interested in fashion is seeing her sitting there laughing hysterically at the jokes about Fran Drescher's honking voice and her relationship Mm. with the kids and the sort of advice that she's giving them, sitting there with my mother who is laughing hysterically at all the Yiddish words, the, Mm. um, the Jewish jokes and the sexual innuendo. So it's got it's got that whole package of stuff going on there, and it real that really does mean it's the six to sixty appeal. There is something mm. there for everyone, but as Michael said, classic sitcom format, classic studio, mm. three camera, joke, boom boom, punchline, can laughter, move on. You can see it coming. It doesn't matter. It's got so much charm. Yeah, I love the relationship between Niles and Cece. It almost makes the show for me. The cutting banter between those two was so good and it was such a great example of how to write for a second-tier character. Yes. Mm. They're given as much substance as the leads, which I think can sometimes be missed totally when you're writing a show. Yeah, yeah, and you're right there, Debbie. The audience can be 6 to 60. I mean, I first started watching this in high school, but then when I was at university and I should have been watching something a lot cooler, I can remember uh, sitting in my room in a Sunday night with my best friend watching The Nanny. Uh, I probably should have been doing something a whole lot more productive interesting. And look, I had that experience this weekend because it is all available on Stan. I don't know where else it's available, but the whole series is there. And honestly, I had a lot of trouble um, uh, turning it off. Oh yeah, it's fabulous. Okay, let's check in with what else you're both watching. Michael? Oddly, I think right now the thing I'm sort of watching is I'm just watching a chunk of the original Star Trek. And I sort of think I ended up there because I started 
I finished watching Star Trek Picard on Amazon and then I started watching some bits and pieces. Then I got onto some fan films and I saw a fan film that was an original series fan film and then I just ended up in the original series kind of watching some of the really iconic sort of episodes and in particular they remastered the show and so they went back and added all of these very gentle sharpening up updates to the special effects spaceship models and things like that but they were all designed to still fit the 60s look of the show so in back in particular i've been watching the third season of the show where there's a lot of that and a lot of sequences that weren't there in original episodes but beautiful shots of like klingon warships and kind of sexier shots of the enterprise that you know that was sort of not there if you watched it sort of on tv or on dvd that's kind of my odd spotty geeky tv viewing bubble at the moment Debbie, have you been going anywhere odd too? I've been watching Never Have I Ever on Netflix, which is the series created by Mindy Kaling with Lang Fisher. And it's sort of a teen comedy. There are 10 episodes. It's about an Indian-American girl named Devi who is um, decides early in the series that, you know, she really needs to have sex with the hottest guy at the school. And there's a you know, stuff going on there to do with her relationship with him. You also meet her best girlfriends. You also are at home. So you get a big sense of her domestic life. And it's it's got a lot of wit and a lot of charm. The cast is terrific. You know, we were talking about the nanny and, and the Jewishness of it, the sense of Indian culture and Indian life and rituals and the foods that are eaten and sort of values in the household. The mother has a real aversion to running the dishwasher because she thinks it's wasteful. Um, and there, there's all there's a lot of that kind of little detail that really gives it richness. And it's it's got a lot of charm and it's very generous to all its characters you know the the kind of stereotype you might normally get of the hot guy at the school is quite different in this show the way that character develops is really different from what you might expect and that's the case with the trajectory of a number of the characters so it makes it really rewarding to go through the 10 episodes okay cool i'm gonna put that on my list sounds great okay so i'm just catching up with the back half of shows that we have already reviewed killing eve and mrs america both of them have gotten better as the seasons have gone along. Mrs. America in particular, there was one episode with Phyllis Schlafly, played by Kat Blanchett. I was debating uh, Betty Friedan, played by Tracy Ullman. And just the back and forth between the women was so electric. It was such a gut punch. There was this one scene where mm. Tracy just then sort of basically spits at Kate Blanchett, you witch, it was something like that. And it almost I was physically recoiled, it made me sit back in my seat. I just thought the acting was fantastic. And Killing Eve as well, I think that's just been – it's gotten stronger as it's gone on. And If you're a bit put off by sort of lukewarm reviews at the beginning of the season, I think you should jump back in because it uh, mm. gets really strong. Okay, let's finish off with game time. Welcome back to Game Time. Michael's chosen topic is Alo Alo. Michael, are you ready? Yes. Lay it on me. Alo Alo is a sitcom about the life of a French cafe owner during the German occupation of France in the Second World War. Name the town it was set in. Oh, okay. We're starting really easy here. Nouvion. Oh, that was an easy one to get the ball rolling. Okay. Alo Alo ran for nine seasons, totaling 85 episodes, including two Christmas specials. When did the Christmas specials run? So the show was like in the 80s. Like I watched it first in high school. So I feel like the show was like like 80 to 90 or like 82 to 90 or something. So I'm going to take a punt and say the Christmas specials were like, oh, I don't know, 90 and 91 or 89. Uh, you get half a point. Do I get half a point? For which one? Will that For 91. 
91. Can only be- Half a point for 91. For 91. Oh, then can I, oh, 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 what about no, no, 91 and 92? I mean, oh, that one, I feel like I'm cheating now. I, look, yeah, I would have said, I would. my answer would have been 90 and 91. Okay, the answer is the first was a 45-minute episode uh, which followed Series 2 in 1985 and the second was also a 45-minute episode screened at Christmas 1991 preceding Series 8. So there you go. Question three, for what reason... Was the series put on hiatus between 1989 and 1991? Okay, so I, d- I don't know those dates specifically. We're going to take a punt and say it was because um, Gordon Kay, uh, the actor who played Rene, I almost want to say he was in a car accident and he actually, he, he was in a coma, I think, for a while. And I actually think it was one of those cases where he'd lost chunks of memory and when he came out of the coma, they almost kind of had to teach him who he was. Yep, that's right. Uh, Gordon Kay suffered a devastating head injury when storm force winds drove a shaft of wood through the windscreen of his car yeah. and into his head. Incredible story. And, and he was like in hospital, I feel like, for ages. Like it was an extraordinary story of survival. Next question. <clears throat> Listen very carefully. I shall say this only once. <laughs> was the catchphrase of Michelle of the Resistance. She was the leader of the Nuvion branch of the Resistance whose commander was described as the one with the big Uter and was played by Kirsten Cook. But which branch of the French Resistance was Michelle a leader of? I think they were the de Gaulle Resistance because they de Gaulle was the one with the big Uter. Yes, the Gaullist Resistance. Well done. There you go. Last question. Which actors played Captain Bertarelli. Okay, so I don't know the second one because he was terrible, but the first one was Gavin Richards and he was brilliant. Yep, it's Gavin Richards from Series 4 to 6 and by Roger Kidder in Series 7. Michael, congratulations. <laughs> you snuck in there with your two half points. What was my, are you telling me that Alberto Bertarelli was only half a point? <laughs> oh, that is just harsh. You people are the meanest scorers on the face of the earth. I think it was the Christmas never specials that did it, but yeah, I'm, no, that I'm did in mean, awe that did of me. your knowledge of who's, this. But who's Hail to know. the master I mean, of mastermind. Who's going to know about Christmas specials? <laughs> Thanks, Michael and Debbie, for being such wonderful sports as always and for the great chat. Have a wonderful week and I'll see you next time. You too. Thank you, Louise. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your favourite podcasting app and please rate and review us. You can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael Odato and Debbie is at Debbie Enker. Or you can find myself at Lou underscore Roog. You can also read stories by Michael, Debbie or myself on the mastheads of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. We'll catch up with you next time on the Television Aries. The Televisionaries is brought to you by the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. It's hosted by myself, Louise Rugendyke. It's created and executively produced by Life Editor Monique Farmer and Culture Editor Matt Burgess. The podcast is produced by Lap Fan. Now Head of Audio is Tom McKendrick. The Nine Network is the owner of this podcast and the streaming service Stan.